You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. If we haven't met before, my name is uh, Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to say it's great to be with you this morning, especially if you're new. I just want to welcome you and let you know uh, that we really value you being with us this morning. And if we can do anything for you, if we can help in any way, please let us know. Uh, at the end of the service, if you go out the door and over to the right, there's a Connect Center. So we'd love to meet you there and uh, get to know a little bit about you and then answer any questions that we might be able uh, to for you. Uh, welcome those watching online uh, this, morning well, this, as, this morning as well. It's great to have you uh, with us too. Well, we're working our way through the, the book of First Peter, and uh, we're actually going to finish the first chapter today. So we're making a, a pretty good dent in the book here, and hopefully you brought your little uh, journals with you so that you can mark those up and, and jot down notes. Uh, we have some books that will help you in the study of First Peter out as well. I know we ran out, but we reordered, so we've got some books for you there if you'd like to be studying during the week and preparing uh, for our times together. But what we've learned so far is that Peter is writing a letter to people that he calls elect exiles. They're people in the first century. And uh, they're experiencing difficult times, fiery ordeals, suffering. These are kind of some of the words that we look at uh, in the book, that they're being resisted for their faith. So it's not an outright, like, government-sponsored persecution where there are people being martyred. That's probably not what's happening at this stage of the church's life in the first century. It's more sort of random uh, acts of rejection or social pressure to conform to the ideology of the day, uh, to live like those around them. There's probably pressure at work and in their families and that sort of stuff. And and he starts the letter we looked at last week by reminding them to look backwards and realize that God has caused them to be born again. God has given them new life. They have this living hope now, he says, and that living hope is an inheritance. It's an eternal inheritance, the new heaven and new earth with Jesus Christ And uh, it will never die. It can't be taken from them. Uh, It gives them this great promise to look ahead. Look to the future uh, for your eternal inheritance. We shared the story about... about a long-distance swimmer who had, uh, was swimming on a foggy day after 15 hours of swimming, gave up, uh, did not reach the shore. And the next day, she communicated in a press conference that, I believe, had it not been foggy, if I could have seen how close the shore was, if I could have seen the shore, I could have made it. And Peter's going to bring that theme throughout. It's strong in the text today that we want to be looking uh, toward our eternal future because that gives power, that gives God's grace for us today uh, as we live. We also saw last week, and Caleb referred to it, how we live in enviable times. The prophets, he said that to them, to us as well. The prophets and angels long to look at the work of Jesus Christ, to experience the salvation that we've experienced. The Old Testament prophets could only dream of it. They only saw it sort of in fuzzy terms. We see it crystal clear. Jesus the Savior who died and has risen and is now with us. And so he says you live in this period where, um, you know, where you know the salvation of Jesus Christ. And it's such a blessed place 
to be. So today we're going to look at verses 13 through 25, which really follow on from there and tell us how we should live, how we should live in the times that we uh, find ourselves in. So uh, God's word to us this morning, we're going to begin reading in verses 13 and we'll finish the chapter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again. Not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Well, this is every section of Peter is pretty densely. Uh, written, constructed. So this is, this is no exception. And we're going to walk through the passage, but I'm going to spend um, probably the most time on the first part of the passage because it's really, in some ways, the theme of the whole book, and it's really the theme of what we talked about last week as well. So I think what Peter is doing in this section is he's laid out, as I did at the introduction, what's already happened. God has saved you. He's given you an inheritance. You live in these wonderful times, as difficult as they are. You live in these wonderful times to know Jesus Christ. And now he's going to say, so, so what difference does that make? How should you live? How this, with apologies to Francis Schaeffer, he wrote a book called this. How should we then live based on what Jesus has done for us? And I think in the passage he says three things. He says that we are to think right, we are to live right, and we are to love right. And I know it should be an L-Y, it should be an adverb, think rightly. But I want to say think right because those who are like meticulous about grammar, will be troubled by that, but so you will remember it. So you will remember this outline. If I said it correct, no, I know, correctly, then, uh, then you would. And so I'm intentionally, okay, doing this so it will irritate some and it will cause you to remember. So think right. Think right. That's what is implied. What's been implied in the first 12 verses is made clear in these verses. Peter says believers must focus on their eternal future to know how to live today. In other words, he's saying sort of reverse engineer your life. 
Go to, verse 13 says, the return of Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ here means his return, when he reveals himself at his coming. So go to the return of Jesus Christ, or your death, whichever comes first. Uh, Imagine the return of Jesus, and then from that point, imagine what that will be like, and then reverse it here, back up to today, and live in accordance with that day. That's what he's calling us to. He calls these struggling Christians who are marginalized uh, in their culture. He calls them to set their hope fully on the returning Christ. Verse 13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Think about the day that what will happen on that day, how grace will be brought to you. Set your hope on the grace that will be brought to you when Jesus returns. Imagine that day. And what he's saying is focus on that day of grace and you will find grace for today. I don't think we think of that very much. Focus on that day of grace and you will find grace for today. Therefore, he says, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. So to live as elect exiles means we must realize what God has done for us in the past and we must realize what he has in store for us in an imperishable inheritance. Therefore, verse 13 says, prepare your minds for action, set your hope fully on uh, grace. So he's going to give a number of exhortations or a number of commands here imperatives, that is, commands, things that we are to do. And it's worth noting that therefore uh, we get all that God has done, then we get therefore, then we get a call to our action. In his commentary on First Peter, Ed Clowney wrote, the imperatives of Christian living always begin with therefore. Whenever, the com- whenever you get a command in the New Testament, a command from Scripture, if it doesn't say it, the, Im- the implication is there's a therefore in front of it. Because of what God has done, we live this way. Empowered by the gospel, we are to do the following. Because we're in union with Jesus, this is how we are to live. Because we are new creatures, born again with a new life, this is what you're to do. The commands of Scripture always have a therefore because they are in light of, built on the foundation of, and empowered by the work of Jesus Christ. And so he says, based on all that he has done, you are to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the coming of Christ, verse 13. And he says, because of that, or to do that, we are to prepare our minds. Preparing your minds for action. Prepare your mind for action. The Greek language here, they have to interpret it because we would never use the the figure of speech uh, that is used in the Greek to describe preparing your minds for action. The Greek is literally, gird up the loins of your mind. And uh, that would just sound strange, okay, because we don't think of that. But here's what, here's what girding up your loins meant. If you've ever wondered about that, which I'm sure now's the moment you find out. Uh, so uh, girding up your loins meant that men at this time uh, wore long robes. 
And so wearing a robe, it wasn't very, uh, if you needed to be active, it wasn't conducive to running or some kind of labor where you were going to be climbing or, you know, getting in some kind of a crouched position. So the way you girded up your loins is you reached and you grabbed the back of your robe and you pulled it forward between your legs and then you tucked it down in your belt so that the robe would be sort of tied around your legs and then you could move. So girding up the loins of your mind means get ready to work. Get yourself in a position where you are prepared to do something that's going to require something, cause, call, uh, cause you to be strenuous. A, a metaphor that we would use that would really make sense would be roll up the sleeves of your mind. Whenever somebody's going to get to work, maybe they roll up their sleeves. Gird up your loins, or in this case, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Prepare The English translation is simply preparing your mind for action. So he's saying consider what the return of Christ, what's in front of you, and prepare your mind for that. It's it's interesting that the first thing he talks about is the mind. Be sober-minded because how we think about things affects how we live. He's saying Feed your mind in a way that will prepare you to look to Christ and his return, will prepare you for action. What comes into our mind is so important. What we feed our mind is so important. Just like an athlete feeds their body in a nutritious way uh, so that they can perform, so the believer must be thinking rightly in order to be ready for action. Thinking correctly, putting sound thoughts, the words of Scripture into our mind to transform how we think, to transform how we view the world, just like an athlete would fuel herself or himself with proper nutrition. A number of years ago, I I read an interesting article uh, about the basketball player Dwayne Wade. He retired, I think, in 18, 2018, something like that. So a few years ago, he retired, but he had a long career. He played, played for the uh, Miami Heat a bunch of it, and he, uh, he was talking about that, uh, how he watched every morsel that went into his body, and he was so careful about what he consumed that he actually traveled with a personal chef. So he had the means to be able to hire someone to just feed him a diet that would enable him to play. And I think he played like 16 years or something. So he had some longevity uh, to his life. But the point of the article that I found so interesting was he said, everything changed when he hit 30. Everything changed when he hit 30. He said uh, that he used to just drive through McDonald's. He used to eat pizza, burgers, junk food. He actually said, I'm sure it's an exaggeration, but he said, I never had a vegetable until I was 30. So I don't know. If, I don't know. Kind of sounds like pure bliss. But anyway, he, he never had a vegetable until age 30. But he said, now I see the brevity of my career. And I need to perform at peak performance. So he got to age 30 in basketball years as like age 60 in regular life, I suppose. So he got to age 30 in basketball in the NBA, and he said, I've got a brief time in front of me. And because of the brevity of my career, I'm looking towards the end of my career, and i got to start fueling my body correctly to be able to play at peak 
performance. That's what this passage is telling us. We need to put things into our mind that are sound and true, the Scripture, uh, so that we are able to live as God wants us to live, so that we are ready for action, ready for action. Roll up the sleeves of your mind. Be sober-minded so that you're ready for action so, action so that you can fix your mind on what is to come because the daily thoughts, the culture is not going to tell you, be anticipating the return of Christ. Be prepared for the coming of the kingdom. No one in the culture is going to tell you that. So you have to prepare your mind for that. It's interesting. If you think about the context, what he's told them is you're exiles. He said it in this passage too. You're cultural outsiders. You are spiritual foreigners in your culture because your home is the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth. And so he's saying uh, this whole book is about living in exile, living where you are part of a culture that is outside the norm that your, your host uh, land, even if it's where you were born, your host land is now foreign to you because you've got a new birth and a new citizenship, a new king and a new kingdom. And so because of that, we need to be asking, are my, is my mind shaped primarily about the truths of my home, my true home, or is my mind shaped by the surrounding culture all day long? You will hear messages communicated to you about the importance of wealth, possessions, status, accomplishment, success. I mean, you can find churches that are built on that, that is going to tell you about success. So we need to be saying, is that, am I imbibing, imbibing of those thoughts The idea that you are what you own. You are what you achieve. Or in this culture, you are what your children achieve. That's Frisco and the surrounding communities. You are what your children achieve. Bombarded constantly by messages about appearance. You are how you look. You are, you know, how young you, you are. That, that's the reality of who you are. You are how you dress. Your message is about approval. You are who accepts you. You are who celebrates you. You are who likes you. You are how many friends you have. You are how many followers you have on social. So these messages and a thousand others are bombarding us All day long. So he says, be sober-minded. We're still in 13. Preparing your minds, girding up, rolling up the sleeves of your mind for action. Be sober-minded. All of those thoughts I just shared with you are drunken-mindedness. They're not sober-minded. Now, sober-minded here means serious. It means uh, uh, thinking with some gravitas. Thinking, uh, but, but it also means thinking soberly. Don't give in to drunk thinking. Clear thinking is imagining the return of Christ. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. Jesus splits the skies. You meet him. The grace of God that will be communicated to you in that moment, I assure you, you are what you own, will be very foolish in that moment. 
That is not the truth. And in that moment, we will see crystal clear. So he's saying, sober up, sober up, wake up, is what he's saying right now. In that moment, the grace that will be revealed when Christ's return is, you are his, you are loved, you are declared righteous, you are forgiven, you are a recipient of grace, you are a son or a daughter of the Father, you are defined by your relationship with God. This is reality. And if we don't see that day and live in the good of that truth, then we will be very tempted to not roll up our sleeves for action, but to roll with the flow. Not to be sober-minded, but to be drunk on the philosophies and the passions and the ideas and the politics and the desires. To be drunk on the age. We're all tempted to that. And that's what he's saying. Hey, you're an outsider. Well, don't conform to the pressures that you feel. Thinking this way, setting your hope on the future, setting your hope on Christ's return, it's often critiqued. It's a philosophy that's critiqued even in the church. It's a philosophy that's critiqued because we say, well, those who are so heavenly minded are no earthly good. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. And, and I, I, re, I relate to that a little bit. I grew up in an environment that was hyper, hyper, Jesus is returning at any moment. Uh, it, was, it was like the leftovers of the Jesus movement a little bit. Uh, it was the late great planet Earth. It was any moment he's returning. And, and I get that if, you know, it's more important what's happening in the news and we've got to find out who the bear is and who the beast is. If you're living with all that and yet your marriage is in shambles, you're drinking too much, you're cheating on your taxes, you might have some other things to worry about than is Russia the bear. Like, are you following Jesus might be what you should worry about in that moment. Okay? So what's the 666? You might need to be worrying about, like, have you already bought into the 666? Are you following Jesus? That's probably what you need to be thinking about. Is Jesus my Savior? So I understand. I got, I, there's long periods of time in my Christian life where I would say I didn't really anticipate the return of the Lord because I, there had been so much, well, frankly, goofiness associated with eschatology that I just really didn't give a lot of thought to it. But the New Testament ethic is that almost all behavior in the New Testament is tied to eschatology. It's all tied to life is short, uh, Jesus is returning, you, it, the, all re- the kingdom has already come but not yet, you are a new creation, you're already living in the new creation uh, by the Spirit in the kingdom of God. So the New Testament is very much that way and we don't, because we had some bad experience or some false doctrine or something, we don't just give it up. We want to fix our minds on eternity. So heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. I love C.S. Lewis's response to that way. He wasn't responding, but I love what C.S. Lewis says about that. This is a famous quote by him. I don't know if you've seen this one before. I think it's so good. C.S. Lewis said, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire. The great men and women as well who built up the Middle Ages. The English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. 
Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Aim at heaven, you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. So to the exiles, don't aim at earth. Don't embrace the ideologies around you. Be faithful to your callings. He's calling them to action. It's not go up and depart and live apart from the world. No, he's called roll up your sleeves, the, roll up the sleeves of your mind because you're going to be in action. There's action. There's something to do. But we're to, we're to be driven by eternity. Live right. The next two points will be much briefer. Li, uh, I'm sorry, li, uh, think right. The next one is live right. Verses 14 and 16. It says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So he's saying, uh, you know, God's saying, based on what I've given you, based on your eternal inheritance, which I am holding for you, it said earlier in the chapter 1, get your mind set on it and live obediently. And I love what he says. Live as, as obedient children. Obedience is about relating to our father. We're children. It's not keeping the random rules of a tyrant. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about living for our father, living by the directives in scripture from our heavenly father. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You've been born again to a new life. Formerly you were ignorant. Formerly you were deceived. Formerly you were dead. And so you lived with passions that animated your heart. And so don't go there anymore. That's where you were before. That was your uh, ignorance. Don't be conformed to your previous ignorance. Before you were ignorant and so your passions were misguided. You were passionate about you. You were passionate about making a name for yourself and now you have a new life. You are to be passionate for the glory of God. You were passionate for me, about meeting all of your, well not just your needs, your desires and your preferences. You were passionate about yourself because you were the center of the universe, but now you're to be passionate about the glory of God and the good of others. Now you are to be passionate about serving others. We have a new hope and a new direction, and so we aren't pursuing the same goals. The, the, the Bible teaches us in 1 John that, that the world is made up of a set of desires described as the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. But he says, if, if you have, are directed by those, if you're directed by the love of the world, then the love of the Father is not in you, First John says. So he's saying, don't be conformed to that previous passions, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the boastful pride of life. He's not calling us to some strange asceticism. We're to enjoy the gifts of God in life, but we're to do them living separate, holy, apart, separate and apart to God, living for his glory so that we take the gifts that he gives them and we use them for the good of others and the glory of God, not to consume upon ourselves and our own selfishness. And so he's, he's telling them, don't be conformed. The reality is that if we're living with our old passions, then maybe we haven't really been born again. If we don't know anything new, if it's all the same as it was, then maybe we're not really born again. Uh, in his commentary on First Peter that we have out in the lobby, Juan Sanchez says the following, 
If you continue conducting yourself according to your former passions, it suggests that your hope is not really in God. It suggests that your hope is really in something else. So he's telling them here, you are exiles, you are separated, uh, so live a separate life to the Lord. Don't live just like you used to, like they do. Well, why should we live right? Well, he gives kind of three reasons. He says we should live right because of God's character, because of God's judgment, and because of Jesus' sacrifice. So think right and then live right, which is to live holy, which is to live for God, separate to God, uh, to obey his scripture, empowered by his spirit, motivated by his grace. So, uh, first of all, we are to live right because of God's character. Uh, Verse 15, he who has called you is holy... But as he who has called you is holy in all your conduct, uh, be holy in all your conduct. Sorry, I read that wrong. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So he's saying you're to live a holy life set apart uh, because God is. Now we have such, a, such an unbalanced, unbiblical view of holiness. We, we tend to think of holiness as just like this outdated, uh, definitely uh, prudish, from another era, sort of self-righteous, stuffy, narrow, outdated list of rules of things to avoid, um, things not to do. But, but holiness really means, as this text we just read says, to conduct yourself like God to imitate his character, be holy because he is holy. Well, how do we, that's kind of hard to even think about. What does that mean? How do I do that? Well, where do we see holiness? We see the life of God, the holiness of God in the life of Jesus. That's where we look for holiness. And Jesus really corrects uh, sort of an improper understanding of holiness. When you read the Gospels, I mean, do you actually find Jesus to be somebody who's kind of grumpy and frumpy and just mad at everybody all the time? No, children are running to Jesus. In his holiness, children desire to be with him. When you read the Gospels, do you find Jesus to be some sort of self-righteous, holier-than-thou, looking down upon everyone all the time? No, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes, tax collectors are the most despised people of the day. So tax collectors and prostitutes are having meals with him. He doesn't do what they do. He's distinctly different than they. He's perfect in his righteousness. But there was something about his love and his holiness that drew them. Do you find him creating a long list of rules to protect you from breaking the list of rules? No, that's what the Pharisees do, and they hate Jesus. They're behind his uh, death. So no, that, that is not what we see at all. He is perfect holiness in the way he conducts his life. He is devoted to his Father. He is separate to his Father. He loves God and loves others and tells us that is the great commandment. He never compromises. He never gives in. He never allows the pressure of the culture to cause him to sin. He's sinless. Uh, and, and yet there is a joy about his holiness. There is a love about his holiness. So we need to 
look at the life of Jesus and say, that's holiness. That's holiness. Purity and righteousness. So we live right because that's what God is like. Be holy for I am holy. Secondly, because of God's judgment. Verse 17. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. So as you live in exile, live in the fear of God. Live with reverence for God. Live with awe of God. Live, we already read, sober-minded, alert to the nature and character of God, alert to the culture around us, alert to the Scripture, and realize that God judges. Now, he's not telling Christians uh, that they will be condemned for their sins. Jesus was condemned for their sins. Uh, But he wants them to know he's an impartial judge. Uh, He is not an indulgent father who just looks the other way. Uh, He is one who will evaluate our lives. We give an account. He's telling them you're accountable. He's telling us we're accountable. We give an account for our lives. We give an account for our works. Not to be saved by our works because we're not. But we are evaluated, and there's some indication of reward in eternity for uh, living a holy life. So we're to live in the fear of the Lord while we are in exile. So he would say, rather than fear the culture, rather than fear how bad the culture is getting, rather than fear how much the culture is going to harm you for standing up for Jesus, you need to live in the fear of the Lord while you're in exile. That's what he says. We have our fears misplaced. We often have the fear of man. We want the approval of others, or we're afraid of what they can do to us, or we're afraid of just how dark and bad it's getting and how far to the margins we are going to be pushed in the future, and that's just the wrong fear. We're to be fearing the Lord and uh, trusting him. So why do we live right? Well, because God's character be holy because he is, because God's judgment, verse 17, and perhaps, I don't know if you can rank, I probably can't rank these, but I was going to say most important of all, verse 18, because of Jesus' sacrifice. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We've been ransomed from futility, waste, and we've given a purposeful life in Jesus Christ. Our days today matter because eternity matters, is what he is saying here. What is the futility that we were saved from? Well, Jesus describes it. He says, what would it profit a man or a woman to gain the whole world and lose their soul? What would it profit? That's futility. If you are chasing after stuff that is not lasting, if you are chasing after stuff that is not eternal in in essence, it is futility to live for me, to live for now, with no concept of God, others, and eternity. If it's live for me and live for now, that's absolute futility. It's a waste of a life. And so you've been rescued from futility. That's a beautiful idea that we're not only saved from our sins, we're not only saved from judgment, but we're saved from purposeless living and given a profound purpose to live for Jesus. Jesus has shed his blood for us. 
Why live a holy life? Because Jesus gave his life for our sins. Verse 19, the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb offered up for our sins. Jesus' blood is the blood that's on the doorpost at Passover in the Exodus so that the angel of death, so that judgment passed over those who were under the blood. And so it is for the Christian. Judgment passes over, eternal judgment, passes over those who are in Christ, in his blood. And so if he's done all of this for us, why would we continue in sin? May it never be, the scripture says. He was foreknown, verse 20, from the foundation of the world. He's made manifest in the last times. We're in the last times. They were in the last times two years ago, uh, 2,000 years ago. In the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, Jesus was died for our sake, it says. Jesus was raised from the dead, verse 21. He was given glory um, so that your faith and hope are in God. Our faith and hope is in him. We live because of his sacrifice. Hope is a gift. And he suffered indescribably to give us that gift. And so why are we called to live right in exile? Well, we're called to live right in exile because we're to be holy like our God. We're to stand out from the culture. Those in exile are to represent a new way, the kingdom of God to an onlooking world. We're to live right because of God's judgment. Just because we're saved, it doesn't mean in that moment there's no accountability. We do whatever we want. That's presumption, not faith. Rather, God evaluates And so we want to live faithful lives to please him. Our highest aim is to please him. And lastly, we live right because of Jesus' sacrifice. He died to take us out of futility and give us a purpose so that we might live for his glory, to please him, to represent him in a lost and dying world. And I really don't have time to develop the last point, but the last idea is that we are to love right. Love right. Look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. The last phrase is the the word is the good news that was preached to you. So he says, the good news was preached to you. That good news is will never fade, will never fail. He quotes the prophecy there. Uh, It's eternal. But that good news gave you new life. You were born again, okay, and you were born again to a life of love for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. What a calling. He's saying fix your eyes on the return of Christ, and when you do, you're going to have a different view of God's people. When we see eternity and all of God's people in new heaven and earth worshiping, glorifying, serving him in all that we will do in eternity, he's saying when you have your eyes fixed on Jesus, it will elevate the priority of God's people so that you are to love one another in brotherly love. Love your fellow exiles. This is a key thing. You're in exile, but you're in exile together. And so you need to be loving and caring for one another. Helping one another follow Jesus. Helping one another fix our eyes on eternity when we forget. Helping one another love one another so that we can think soberly together. I need you to help me think soberly, and you need me to help you in the same way. Loving one another, connected to one another, knowing one another. We need one another as fellow exiles because it's easy to lose hope when you're isolated and on your own. 
It's easy to lose hope when the messages of the culture are beating you down. It's easy to lose hope when it appears that things are getting darker. But when you are attached and in community with the people of hope, then we feed off one another. We encourage one another. We exhort one another. Those are all biblical phrases from the New Testament. Don't forget the point of the book. It's about hope as an exile. And hope comes as we love one another. What God does among us to stand firm in the grace of God as we help one another. When When the church expresses the love of Christ to one another, we have the strength to set our hope and press on. And by the way, what the host culture around the church needs most is a testimony of Jesus through the people of God loving one another. As churches in this country, I'm not sure we've done very well in the last couple years on this one. We're in exile, and the host culture's looking on and frequently saying, they're more divided than we are. I don't want any part of that. Now, by God's grace, the test is still going. We've still got opportunities all the time to testify to him. And by God's grace, he's really helped us as a church. We've had our moments, but he's really helped us and is helping us to continue to grow in loving one another. But that is the most compelling witness to a surrounding culture when exiles love one another. That's what Jesus says. They will know that the Father sent me when the people love one another. The more diverse the people in age, economics, race, political points of view, uh, you know, secondary, different choices and preferences on secondary issues, the more diverse a group of people is that walks in unity around Jesus, the brighter the gospel is. Because the, what is displayed is the only way this could happen. Those people would be on each other. They would be calling each other out, arguing, fighting together. They would never be together if it wasn't for Jesus. And that was the one good thing about the past couple of years. We found out that we all thought we kind of liked one another. Well, we do. But we found out, you know what? We wouldn't be together if it wasn't for Jesus. And in moments, it's only Jesus that's holding us together. And, and I'm losing my grip. I'm glad, he's got me. I'm glad he's got his grip on me, but I feel like I'm losing my grip. Uh, so we experience that. But the glory of God is that he's helping us to love one another. That this is our, mo- in a, the more polarized the culture is, the more divided the world is, the more compelling is the testimony of unity around Jesus. The darker it gets, the brighter the light of unity and love for one another. So I think that's why he talks about love here. They're, they're to live out love as new people in Christ. Uh, but ultimately, that love, will, that's the answer of hope for the world. If we're just like the world, the same passions, the same purposes, the same lusts, the same desires, the same sins, we look just like the world, we have nothing to offer the world. And if we're as divided as the world, we have no place to offer peace and love and relationship. That only comes as God helps us to love one another. May God help us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today uh, for this truth this reality, Lord, that you have given us something to live for. You've given us a purpose. We ask for your help to apply these things we've read in your text. Help us to fix our eyes 
on eternity. We're so caught up. Lord, I confess, I am so caught up on what do I have to do this week? What's happening today? Uh, What does this person think? What's happening over there? Uh, How do I feel? Um, Lord, all of this stuff that we just live in, we pray that you would lift our eyes off today and see that day so that we could live this day in light of that day. We pray the grace of that day to be revealed would be our grace for today. Lord, we pray as well that we'd live right, not just think right, but we'd live right, that we'd be, live holy lives by your grace, set apart to you, because we want to be like you, Lord, because you are a judge, and because Jesus gave his life for us. And lastly, we want to love right. Help us. Help us to love when it's hard. Give us patience with one another. Give us long-suffering just as you have been patient with us and long-suffering with us. And Lord, may our testimony shine bright of those who differ on a thousand different issues but are one in Jesus, one on the word, uh, one in the community of faith. May it be by your grace. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org. 